I really wanted to like have a like a small membership where I can have a community because long term that's going to help everybody else out more. It's taking time, and so I think now I'm like I'm trying to push it hard as far as trying to find guys like you or whatever to get in a Facebook group or at least jump on monthly calls. I'm just trying to do it through different mediums so that way hopefully people can connect and so hopefully you know meet one another if you will. In all honesty, I feel like you could even charge more. To be honest, like I, I would, I would have spent a lot more to, you know, not don't charge me more now, but, <laughs> but I, I would have spent a lot more. I mean, I, I feel like just, just some of these like meetup groups that I go to sometimes they charge like fifty dollars a swing, and, and there's not even a lunch or anything provided. Just a one-time meetup where this is, you know, a monthly thing with a lot of benefits and a lot of great connections. I mean, for someone like myself, I feel like if I met one person over the next year, you know, it brought me a tremendous amount of value and. And I think, what did I spend? $15, I think, a month. I think you're selling it too cheap almost. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty. Mary said that she had the whole you know, thing that sparked this conversation is I guess she had a marketing company on. And now they're helping her. They got her in Asbury Park Press, which is a local paper here. But she did like over $15,000 in business just off of them getting her in that article. And they've also gotten her in a ton of other things. I mean, she said, you know, listen, it was one phone call for $15 a month that it already brought me over $15,000 worth of gross return. I mean, that's just tremendous value in my opinion. And uh, if, if I can even get a fraction of value like that out of any of these calls, I mean, it would be worth $100 a month to me at this point, you know? I'm recording this. Can I use that as a clip for the podcast, if you don't mind? Like, Yeah, thank God, yeah. So that was a kickoff call with one of our new members, Tyler, who just joined the group. He joined the group through his friend, Mary. So thank you both for being a part of it. It's free to join the Facebook group. So if you're on the fence, I don't know why you want to join. If it's free to join the Facebook group, that way you can ask questions. Hopefully we can answer any of your business questions there. But if you want to jump on the monthly calls, that's where it costs money. Plus, by becoming a member, you also get special episodes that other people don't get. And we're going to keep adding more perks, as I've said in the past. So Hopefully that gives you a little preview and insight on like how much value we're actually getting from doing these monthly calls and give you an opportunity to go ahead and meet other people. We want to make you all active listeners and help you with your business and not just help you passively. So come on in, join our Facebook group. And if you want to jump on these monthly calls, become a member and you can find out more about both those options in the episode description below. All right, now on to this episode. Oh yeah, I had over 100000 on credit card debt. Right, well, the biggest barriers to the growth, obviously, was not having product. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That makes it hard when you're trying to sell a product. You can't afford, as an entrepreneur, small business, to not make sure your product is worthy of being on the market. Yes, it's another really good learning lesson. And I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell this story because I should have. I got the call and the show was just starting and I went back to my husband and I probably looked like I'd seen a ghost. I probably said something colorful with some French derived words and said, we're in big trouble. My name is Lori Nadeau. I am a 51-year-old woman. My company name is Smoke and Mary, which is a smoked Bloody Mary mix, which is why we named it Smoke and Mary. Where are you located? We are located in Northern California, but we've just moved all of our business production to Dallas, Texas. And why is that? There are several reasons for that. I'd say the biggest one was for logistics, just because we weren't able to get our product out to a majority of the country because of the cost of freight. That was probably the number one reason. The number two reason would be California taxes. It's really, really hard and very expensive to do business in California. And so are the taxes way less in Texas? Because we got an international audience and I know they have no state taxes, but I don't know if it's just easier to do business because of that as well, or if there's other reasons. There's several reasons to do business in Texas. Besides taxes, they have a threshold where you don't pay any corporate tax until you go over that threshold. I believe it's $2.5 million, which is fantastic because there's a lot of small businesses that can really help out. And if you're doing over $2.5 in a year, your business is doing pretty well. That makes a lot of sense. And then just Texas in general, they have a lot of support for small businesses and just for business in general. You'll notice that when you go there and you just see how many thriving businesses they are that are there just because they support them. 
Yeah. And it's funny that you said also with logistics speaking, there's going to be an interview that comes out right around yours. It'll probably be a couple episodes before. So if people are on the lookout, they probably heard about logistics and why you being in Texas versus you being in California, there's a guy named Jalen Getz from like wannable.com. And he was explaining all the differences of having one logistics center in the middle of America versus having different ones all across the coast and why you would want one versus the others. That's interesting that that's playing out here for you as well, plus taxes and easier way to do business, if you will. Oh, it's a lot easier. In fact, we're going into our fifth year of business right now. In the beginning, because we started our production in California, because that's where we lived and that's why we moved out here. But we were thinking that California is great because we're going to source all of our produce here. We weren't even considering the freight costs and the freight costs to get it to anywhere on the East Coast. And once we started considering that and seeing that we just absolutely couldn't get any business on the East Coast because nobody wanted to pay the freight, that's when we started actually manufacturing. We did it in Ohio for a portion of the time, and then that manufacturing facility didn't work out for us for numerous reasons. And I've always said to my husband, who's also my partner, I've always said, I think we need to be in Texas. You know, we've got a smoked product. We just really need to be in Texas. Texas is a perfect environment for us, along with all the other benefits that kept unfolding the more I looked into it. So we ended up after the thing didn't work out in Ohio's production facility, we ended up moving it to Texas, kind of as just what happened. We decided to just have one production facility because we were thinking we needed to have them carefully planned out through the U.S. and have California, have East Coast, have Texas. But our cost for production almost doubled in California because of all the costs just for employees and insurance and taxes, all that stuff, that we ended up just making the business decision to do everything in Texas because we didn't have to worry about all those other things. So we ended up, we ship all the produce from California to Texas, we produce it there, and then we ship it back or we ship it to wherever it's going. But a lot of our distribution we do to California. With shipping it back and all of shipping to and back, it's still less expensive for us to do that in Texas than to have continued doing it in California. I know we're kind of going quick. We said in the beginning, we'll talk about maybe the Ohio thing and more in detail about Texas, but can you talk about your product a little bit more? Give us a little bit more detail on what it is, and especially if people don't know what Bloody Mary Mix is. Absolutely. So Bloody Mary Mix is a cocktail that is the base ingredient of a Bloody Mary is tomato. And it's usually a savory cocktail. So you'll have different things, Worcestershire sauce, tomato. Typically, it's made with the tomato juice mixed with vodka. When I started, I actually started this because I had an abundance of tomatoes because I was actually helping out some clients of mine, my real estate clients, because that was another thing I did in the past, helping them with some farmer's markets for a surplus of tomatoes. And when we had this surplus, I learned how to can and I was doing salsas and all kinds of stuff. And I had so many tomatoes still and I had them all in my neighbor's freezer. So I had to get them out and I needed something else to make with them. So that's why I started these. It's not even that the Bloody Mary was my go-to cocktail. I personally only have Bloody Marys or typically would only have them in airports or at casinos. And those are two things I really didn't do a lot, but now I'm doing them a whole lot. Yeah, I was going to say, it's been my go-to cocktail for the last week, in case you're wondering. Yeah, so did you receive a surprise gift in the mail? Yes, Lori actually sent it to me. So this, I can vouch for it. She said it would make a better interview, and I appreciate whenever you're thinking of the interview as well. So I like to drink as well, but I'm probably just like you. Like I would have it probably once a month or something like that. But lately, you sent me your red kind and your green kind, and I can vouch for them. They are excellent, especially coming from a non-Bloody Mary mixer. It's a great product, so I appreciate you sending it over. Well, yeah, I appreciate you looking at it and trying it before the interview, because I really believe that that makes a better interview so that people can understand what it is easier because there's two of us talking about it and explaining what it is. Yeah, so I'm all done with the red and I've got about 25% left of the green. Perfect. Yeah. So back to the tomatoes. And one of the reasons I never really cared much for Bloody Marys is because I'm a social person. If I'm having a cocktail, I like to talk and enjoy the people that I'm with. I always found that Bloody Marys just got really watered down and lost all of their flavor. So and you kind of just force yourself to drink it because you don't want to waste the alcohol. I think it's a funny thing, but I think most people do that. I figured I've got this sticker on my computer here and it says there's got to be a better way because I truly believe there's a better way for everything. 
And so when I was faced with all this surplus of tomatoes, I decided, well, you know, a neighbor said, well, why don't you make Bloody Marys? And I just thought, wow, there's got to be a better way for what's already out there. And so I actually just started, I have like two five gallon big pots in my kitchen and I had them going and I had tomatoes and then I was smoking the salsa. So I thought, wow, I bet this would be really, really good smoking the tomatoes or the mix. And so I did that and I threw in a whole bunch of other spices out of the spice rack and in the condiments in the fridge. And I just started doing this in my kitchen one day and I know that I can even make this better than what I just did. So over the next five years, and the red one was five years and 16 revisions. The green one, I'd say it was seven years from start to finish because I kind of developed them all at the same time. But I didn't think it was a good idea to go to market with a new brand with a green product. I always go back to green eggs and ham. If people are listening, that can relate to the Dr. Seuss book. But it was something that was not meant to be appealing from that book. That's why I launched the red one first. The green one was always my favorite. And then once we got the red one going, launched that, really took that into the market for four years. Yeah, well, we keep saying years and years. Can we just say exactly like what year? Because I'm trying to figure out what year you actually started the company and then what year you started doing this in your kitchen. Because obviously the kitchen stuff comes first before you actually, quote unquote, launched your Bloody Mary mix. Yes. So we started in 2015 was when I launched the company years prior to that. Actually, it was probably four years prior to that because I was still doing reiterations a year after we started or went into production. So 2015, we started, hit the market. The way that we launched well, this- one second is- before even we talk about this launching, if you don't mind, because we can just focus on this whole product versus going all the way back in your timeline, because this is kind of your first really stepping stone towards entrepreneurship, right? Like as far as starting your own business? It's my first successful. Okay. Well, that's fine. Because sometimes I go through a whole timeline and whatnot, but I really just want to focus on your one product because sometimes we go different ways with interviews. And I just think this is very interesting because a lot of people are thinking want to make a product and you're still in the thick of things as far as how it's going to pan out. So 2015 is when you launched a brand. Yes. Let's figure out what year did you actually start making these Bloody Mary mixes kind of just for fun or trying to figure out if it would work. What year was that? Like 2012 or something? I would say 2011, 2012. Okay. So for just a couple of years, would you just kind of play around with it? Or did you always think from the beginning, this could be a business? I was actually playing around with it a lot. And then once people started saying, wow, this is really good. Then I started thinking, "Hmm, I wonder what it would be like to manufacture this and put it on the market. So you're playing around with it. You have extra tomatoes. You're like, okay, maybe I can make a product. So what's your next step there? Do you try to Google to find a manufacturer or what were the steps that worked for you? Actually, what I was doing mostly in the very beginning, because I've been in sales and marketing all my life. So for me, I knew that really testing the market was the most important thing because I wanted to have a successful product. So I had been sending it out all over the country to different people, whether I knew them or didn't know them just to see if it was something they would buy. And that's really important because you have to realize when you start a company like this, you're going to put in hundreds of thousands of dollars into it. You can't afford as an entrepreneur, small business, to not make sure your product is worthy of being on the market and worthy of spending that kind of money. So that's where I made that decision to really work carefully on that. The other thing that I worked carefully on once I got everything kind of tuned in, was really getting the marketing steps in place. For a new brand, it's really, really important that you have a good logo, that your look is really good because you got to look good on the shelf. You have to be very attractive to the human eye. So I probably spent about a year and a half before we even launched the product. I spent a year and a half just trying to get that stuff right getting the message right, really working closely with marketing people that launch brands. Those things, it's really building and setting that foundation. You can't afford to miss that and skip that that step or think that there's a better way to do it. And then after that, of course, then there was the research on manufacturing. At first, you know, I thought, well, maybe I want to do this myself. Maybe I'll just get a building and do it myself. Then I looked at the cost for that. It's not just rent. All of the equipment is about a million dollars. I would think the equipment would be, yeah, more expensive than just the rent. Like that's probably the cheapest thing that you're thinking of at that point. Right. So when you're thinking about this, after you make the logo, what year are we talking about here? After the logo, well, that would have been right. Year before. So 2013, 2014. 
Yeah, that's when I started working with the branding company. So you said the branding company. How much does a branding company cost? And walk us through that. Well, here's a unique situation. I happen to know those people. They were neighbors of ours when we lived in Park City, Utah. I think they wanted 18000 plus plus $1,000 a month for retainer and then ongoing work. That is a very expensive offering, but I really, really wanted this to work. Those weren't funds that I had available to just hand over on something that I wasn't sure would work. I actually made a deal with them to give them a percentage of the company if they would work with me. What percentage? 10%. Okay. 10%, it's not a lot, but it saved me trying to figure out, okay, now where am I going to get this funding? My entire business has been self-funded from day one to today. So when you're looking at any amount of money, you have to look at it really, really close because you can't afford to say, well, you don't have the option of going, well, I'll just ask the investors for another $100,000 so that we can do this or we can do that. That's not an option. Offering them that, I figured a couple things were really smart about that idea. One, it's going to hold me more accountable to taking this thing all the way to being extremely successful. And two, it also is going to make them more active and proactive. Hey guys, Rain Motti here, CEO and founder of Hawk Packaging and ZipFox.com. You can catch me on episode 145. I'm sharing the story of how I started my business with just 75 bucks and I grew it all the way to over a million in revenue in just a couple years. Austin and I just had a talk and we were discussing the same thing, how to start a business with 500 bucks or less, the types of businesses that work best, how to do it, what resources you need to use. All of it is there. If you want to check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed. You got to become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there. Basically, when you gave these people 10% as well, were they doing ongoing work to help you to make sure you succeeded as well? Because this is a great idea for people who don't have a lot of capital or don't want to do initial. Some people are like, oh, you're giving up your company, but there's less risk to you by doing it as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's less risk. There's a certain level of added accountability on both of our parts. And my whole idea was I can give them $100,000, which I don't have. Then you have to go through and find the investors. And you have to go through the whole process to get the investors and to satisfy the investors. My goal with this company is to make it very, very successful and sought after globally. So not just in the U.S., not just in California or just in Texas, globally. Then when it comes time to sell the company, because every company eventually will be sold, if I sell the company for, let's say conservatively, if I sell it for $10 million, I think it's worth giving them a million dollars for having them on my team. It depends on the partnership and if how everything works out and whatnot, but everyone has a different viewpoint on it. This is why I tell everyone who's listening, figure out what works for you. How much money did you actually have saved up before you did all this? And was this like a side business at first? Because it seemed like it took a while to make the logo and the branding and whatnot. It sounds like it took like a year to do all that. It was a year and a half. And that because I was working for somebody else. And I also had another company that I had that was taking some of my time, but not a lot of it. And I also work full time for a company. That makes more sense why it take a while. It's not like you were just brainstorming all day what you're going to do. I hope not for a year and a half. <laughs> right. Well, and part of that was it really takes a lot of time to test the market. And when you say testing the market, I know you said you sent out to people. Were there specific people you were sending your Bloody Mary mix to before you even did this logo and stuff to make sure that it would be successful or at least help your chances? Yes. And I had learned how to can shortly before this. So I was sending, I was canning it, going through the canning process so that it would be safe to send across the country. So I'm sending out these mason jars out all over the country. And I started with family and friends, which you have to start there just because that's your tribe. But it's not always the best way to get honest feedback because they tend to want to make you feel good when you just really want to know if it's good. Right. And I think that's okay because especially if they say no, if your family's saying it and friends are saying no, then you definitely shouldn't go forward, right? Absolutely. Well, there's that. And then what I encouraged them to do was to take it to gatherings, take it where there are people that I don't know that don't know me and get their opinions. And it worked out really, really well because I had people doing a scorecard on all of it. So the other part of the thing that took time was with the logo and with the brand. I sent that out to several people saying, what do you think about this? Would you buy this brand off the shelf? So that took time as well. It's not like you're going to get an answer within a month, especially because we did switch things up as we were going through the process. 
to make it better, different, more attractive. There's a lot of steps that have to take place to do it right. And so how much money did you have saved up when you were doing all this too? I know, again, you're working full time, you're saying, but I think this is important to realize how much money you had in the bank or how much leave you're going to give yourself when you stopped doing the other job and did this full time. Well, I did not have a lot of money saved up. Most of it was income from my current job. So the only debt I had is a mortgage because I pay everything else as it happens. So maybe a couple thousand dollars or something you had saved up maybe? Maybe 10000 Okay. 10000 you know, just in savings. And then I had my retirement account, which had, I don't know, 100000 in that. And all of that eventually got depleted. And then I ended up losing the one job that had the really good paycheck because of some things that happened within that company and a whole bunch of us lost our jobs. So things got tight for us financially, but the company was also ramping up. We were doing festivals and shows to consumers because the necessary step as well is to create the consumer demand. So we were doing shows every single weekend. By shows, do you mean are you going to festivals and concerts? Yeah, a lot of food and wine festivals. And as long as it doesn't have a carnival, then we'll go to it. Is that because kids are at carnivals or what? Kids are at carnivals. (laughs) That's one reason. But the reason why... Is it trashy? No, it just seems like when there's a carnival, the adults are there with their children to satisfy their children. It's not about them checking out Bloody Mary Mix and buying Bloody Mary Mix because the kids don't behave real well when they know the carnival's there and they can't go to the carnival. (laughs) So we just kind of eliminated that as a good way of choosing which events that we do. We were doing really well at all these festivals because, you know, the festivals that we would do, it could be 5,000 or it could be 400,000 people or a million that would go through that festival for that weekend or depending on, you know, how long it is. But we got it into that many more mouths. So that's the best way to get your product in front of people is get it out into the masses for consumers and then help them drive the demand to the stores. Did you getting fired from your old job? Like, was that in 2013 or when was that? At 2015 in October. Okay. So is that what actually forced you into like doing this full time? Yes. Was getting fired? Yes. Okay. Because that's what I was doing with the math. That's why I figured, okay, yeah, mid of 2013 was when you got done with the branding and whatnot. Yeah. You're still doing this as kind of side hustle and you get fired at 2015 and you only have 10K, it sounds like in your account. So you've got to start selling this stuff in order to actually make money. Yes. And to still pay the mortgage and all the other things. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Did your husband still have a job? No. When we moved out here to Northern California from Utah, we bought a ranch. For some reason, I had a crazy idea that I was going to grow all the tomatoes. Well, that didn't quite work out. (laughs) I'm not that good. And we bought a 23-acre ranch. And When did you buy it? Did you buy it after you got fired? No, we bought it in May of 2015. Okay, so right before you got fired. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We moved across, uh, sort of across the country, but from Park City, Utah to here in Northern California in May. And then we started production in August of 2015. And September 26th, they let us know that we had a week to relocate or lose our jobs. So we all lost our jobs. Seven of us lost our jobs October 5th. So our first show that we did, our first consumer show was a big one a rib cook-off in Reno, Nevada. We did that show in September of 2015. I guess it was good because it did give me some confidence seeing how much money people are willing to spend at these events. It really built my confidence as well as for the confidence of the money, the cash that was coming in, as well as the satisfaction for the product. So a lot of people were really, really expressing how good it was. And because you always have that question in the back of your mind when you develop a product. Is it really that good? Are my friends and family telling me the truth? Maybe I just like it. Maybe it's not that good. You know, what's my ego doing here? So there's a lot of questions there. But then once you start seeing that in real life, the appreciation that people have for what you did, that's when it really all came to fruition. And, you know, I wasn't so worried when I lost my job. And so what was your first financial year with the company? Did you start it in like September or did it start on the new year? I was just curious, like how much you actually ended up making your first full year? Boy, there was a lot of obstacles that happened the first couple of years, but I guess I say your first five years is the hardest. So that first from September to December 31, I believe we sold 
let me think about this because it was probably, I can't remember exact cases that we sold, but it was a good amount, but I was thrilled with it. The following year, full year, we did like 200% growth of what had been if calculated over the year. So we grew substantially. And then that the following year after that, the co-packer that we were using to manufacture filed bankruptcy. We had no product. Yeah. And I know you said 200% that second year, right? Or is that our first full year? Yeah. We sold like almost 5,000 cases in our first full year. And how much is a case? 12 bottles. Okay. And how much is a bottle? $12. All right. So did you make 500000 Is that right? Our sales were about that. Okay. Yeah. They were about that. Well, then we've got wholesale. We got into Total Wine fairly immediately and not all of them, but the ones locally. We are fortunate to live in the wine country. And so we've got a lot of good friends that are winemakers and One of them was able to kind of walk us into Total Wine, and we were able to get into 14 Total Wine stores within a short amount of time, which was very, very fortunate, because that usually doesn't happen like that. That seems awesome on your first full year, right? Because like a quarter year, whatever, I just like to make it easy on the whole year. So even that first year, were you pretty ecstatic? Were you able to cover all your costs as well? Yes, I was. Okay. So did you feel successful? Of course. Well, and then had the continued growth was the part that was the success just kept growing. Right. So year one, we felt good. Year two, our second full year we're talking about is what, 2017 to 2018? Yes. Okay. So walk us through that. Is that the co-packer issue? Yeah. One of our biggest shows of the year for industry trade shows at that time was nightclub and bar in Las Vegas. And that's where restaurants, bars, anybody who serves alcohol, They're there checking out new products and they're checking them out, tasting them, and then deciding who they want to engage with. So I was trying to get my co-packer to do a $50,000 order, which would have been 25 pallets. And I kept trying to get him for a couple of weeks before that. And I said, you know, guys, I need to get this done. This needs to happen. What's going on? Why aren't you guys scheduling this? When we were at that show in March, I got a call from my project manager there, who was an employee. He says, I got to tell you something. And I'm like, well, what's that? I said, I'm at the show. It's really busy. I can't hear you real well. And he says, they closed the doors. I said, they what? I said, they can't have closed the doors. I need these pallets. He says, they filed bankruptcy. And they came in and closed the doors and kicked everybody out. They gave us enough time, grab our personal belongings, and that's it. They locked those doors and nobody could go back. That's your co-packer you're saying, but you're saying someone heard this at the show? Like, I'm getting misguided here as far as like what I'm trying to follow. No, we were at the show when he called me. Okay, gotcha. And who's he? He was my project manager at the co-packer. At the co-packing. Okay, so now that makes sense. Okay, thank you. So he was my go-to for communication for everything. Whenever we did any adjustments or we needed more mix or Whatever it was, he was my go-to guy. What's his name? Just tell us his first name. Tuck. Tuck. Okay, so Tuck calls you while you're at the show and you're trying to sell your product and you've been waiting for a while to get it from the co-packer and they just haven't been sending it. And then he calls you and just says that they're closing. That they close the doors. Right. And there will be no production. We were on our first day of our show. Yeah, so you were excited. I was. Until you got that phone call. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning when I got the call and the show was just starting. And I went back to my husband and I probably looked like I'd seen a ghost. I probably said something colorful with some French derived words and said, we're in big trouble. We don't have a co-packer anymore. And I talked to the guys in Ohio previously And we did some sample test batching out there, but I just wasn't happy with the product. It wasn't exactly the same. Okay, so I'm going to have to pause you again because now you're saying, guy, where was your original co-packer? Northern California, Okay, outside Sacramento. We had one in California. Then, yeah, you talked to us in the intro about some guys in Ohio. I guess you tested yes. them out, but you didn't like them. And so that's what you're alluding to is that the guys in California closed the door. And now you reached out to the one in Ohio that you didn't like as much, it sounded like. Well, the product wasn't coming out the same. Right. It just wasn't the same. And were you able to get any of your product back from the other company? Because again, these are things we don't think of. Like you had a great first year, right? And then your second year, you're ready. seems like to do better. You're at your show ready to sell your product. But were you able to even get anything out of the co-packing situation or any of your product? Well, they didn't make that batch that I needed. They never made it, but I had a whole bunch of ingredients there. I probably had $10,000 worth of ingredients. 
I was able to go in there with the bankruptcy trustee and recover that stuff, my ingredients. Yeah. Are they still even good then? I mean, how long did you have to wait? It was like in August. It was several months before I could get it. Yeah. If you're going with the trustee, I know it's taking time. Yeah. It was several months because of court proceedings and all of that. So was that product even good? Or do you remember? Because they hadn't made it like we kept alluding to. But again, it's still your stuff in their garage. It's like, you know, I want my stuff. <laughs> it is. But you know, the challenge with food products is when you're making in bulk, if you want to transfer an open bag of spices to another co-packer, most of them won't accept it. Yeah. Because I wouldn't think so either. Yeah, Honestly, I wouldn't want open. them to. I agree. So I, I didn't know if you have any closed products. So was your stuff closed there? Some of it was. So some of it's still usable. Yes. A large portion was not usable. So out of desperation, I ended up going and having the guys in Ohio make it because I decided that the consumer isn't going to notice what I'm noticing. They're not going to notice what? They wouldn't notice that it wasn't exactly the same or exactly right. They'd have no idea. And it was still very good, but it wasn't to my perfection. So I had to let that go because we were in trouble. I was able to get them, the guys in Ohio, to make, I think they did 10 pallets. And we just really ran on very, very limited distribution. We probably canceled half of the shows that we were going to do, the festivals, because we couldn't afford to run out because we had Total Wine. We had to continue to deliver to Total Wine because we would risk ever doing business with them again. And that's just too big of an account to risk losing. So that was that March of 2018. Is this the next year or the same year that you switched over? This was 18. So you switched it over. How long did it tell you to switch over to the new co-packer in Ohio? I don't think we got production in place probably until November of that year. So six months? Are we talking about even longer? Five months? Yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, you got to tell me months or years. I can't just keep doing the math on this. So it's about six months. And I understand because it takes a while, right? So did you make less money in your second year than your first year then? Absolutely. Because I had to send everything that I could, ship it UPS to Ohio. Did you think you'd have to stop the company? No, because I felt like I had enough to limp along. And that's what we did. We limped along. So that's why you canceled all the festivals and whatnot, too. Even if you get sent it to Ohio, how long does it take for them to send something back? You said it took six months for a full transition, but even with your supplies going to Total Wine in California, were they making it right away or how long did that take? They did get it made fairly quickly. Once, because there were a few more tweaks on like, we need to do this. It has to get closer. We have to get it closer to what the mix is supposed to be. So that little... Could they not make more? Because that's what I'm confused by. If they made it pretty quick, and I understand, maybe it took them a couple of months to get it right for you. But I mean, it seemed like it would be incredibly like aggravating or take way too long to me if I have all these festivals set up and they can't just get it made quicker in Ohio. Well, they could have. I finally went out and visited the plant. And so it's really important to visit the plants that you do business with. Okay, so this is a good learning lesson. Yes, it's another really good learning lesson. And I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell this story because I should have known better. So the guy who was running the plant in Ohio, the owner of it, I met him. He was a speaker at the fancy food show in San Francisco. And I'd met him a year and a half prior to doing business with him. I thought, wow, if this organization is having this guy speak, and he was teaching the numbers game basically on how the different margins and all of that worked with distribution. And he also mentioned, oh, and I own a co-packing facility in Ohio and this is what I do. So I thought, wow, this guy's got some serious credibility. So I did everything based on meeting him there, having conversations with him and then having follow-up conversations, but I never saw his facility. So when I finally went to his facility, which was after they ran that batch, and first of all, it's in a tiny, tiny little town of Ohio, and it's a communal kitchen. So if it's a bread company or if it's different sauce companies or whatever, they go there, they basically schedule the time that they're going to work in the kitchen and do whatever they're creating. You know, that can work out because everybody shares the cost. Well, when I got there, it scared the hell out of me. You know, I know what they were doing with my product was sanitary, but everything else was dirty, disgusting. Their docks were somebody, I guess, whoever was coming in to do some production after our stuff was done. 
they had a bunch of frozen boxes of lime juice. It was just sitting on the dock, melting, oozing out of the bottom of the boxes all over the concrete. And I just thought, this is really bad. This is bad. So then I realized that wasn't my production, so I didn't have to worry too much about my production. But when I got in there and I was in making and producing this with all the guys on the line, I'm watching everything. They didn't have all the equipment that is necessary to have a full-blown commercial running operation. The bottling system they had wasn't adequate to fill our mix because our mix is thick and it was chunkier at that time. So it was really hard to push it through the fill heads. They got the bottle filled to about two inches from the top. They had buckets of the mix and funnels and were hand filling and hand capping after the machine did the filling, which is, there's nothing that's unsanitary about that, but it really, really, really raised my shackles, if you could call it that. And that's when I went, called my husband. I said, we can't do this. We cannot do business here. This is not the right facility for us. And so that's when I decided not to run any more product with them. Around that time, I had met some guys in Texas that were starting their own facility. And I thought, wow, because I'd always talked about going to Texas, but I didn't know of any co-packers in Texas because co-packers are not easy to find, especially because there's co-packers. But for your specific product, it's kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. I really wanted to like have a small membership where I can have a community because long-term that's going to help everybody else out more. In all honesty, I feel like you could even charge more. To be honest, I would have spent a lot more. Don't charge me more now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeling you. I would have spent a lot more. Some of these meetup groups that I go to, they charge like $50 a swing and and there's not even a lunch or anything provided. Just a one-time meetup where this is, you know, a monthly thing with a lot of benefits and a lot of great connections. I mean, for someone like myself, I feel like if I met one person over the next year, you know, it brought me a tremendous amount of value. And I think you're selling it too cheap almost. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, Mary said that she had the whole you know, thing that sparked this conversation is I guess she had a marketing company on and now they're helping her. They got her in Asbury Park Press, which is a local paper here, but she did like over $15,000 in business just off of them getting her in that article. And they've also gotten her in a ton of other things. I mean, she said, you know, listen, it was one phone call for $15 a month. It already brought me over $15,000 worth of gross return. I mean, that's just tremendous value, in my opinion. If I can even get a fraction of value like that out of any of these calls, I mean, it would be worth $100 a month to me at this point, you know? Right, because we've learned from other interviews, like Doug Booten, who started Halo Top Ice Cream. Like, there's co-packers for ice cream. There's co-packers for everything. So I can understand what you're saying there. And so what time period did you switch from Ohio to Texas? Because I like to keep a good timeline so everyone can follow this. So I met with the guys, that would have been April of... 18? Yeah, 2018. April 18, I met them in Texas. They were a new company, so I thought, well, you know what? I'm a new company. I am so happy to be in this together with these guys because we could grow together and just really make something just amazing together with both of our companies. The guy talked a good talk and all of that. It took him 14 months. But you've had that happen to you before. Yes. It's really tough because I think it could be the way I was raised as far as really taking a man's word. But that's not the world we live in. But that's still where I automatically go to. Yeah, you sound too nice, to be honest. Well, trusting. I'm trusting. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's what I mean. Trusting, yeah, is a better word. So start talking to these guys and saying, okay, well, let's really explore doing this. And of course, they were getting all new equipment and all kinds of things. And it kept taking forever and forever and forever. He kept going through formulators. I think they went through four formulators before we finally got into production. I did make sure that I let them know, hey, make sure your fill heads are big enough because the stuff is thick and we don't want any problems. So he kept saying, oh, no, no, we're good. We're fine. The project manager guy, he knows what he's doing. And so I just went, okay. Yeah. And he told me where the guy came from, where he worked before, which was one of the larger like salsa manufacturing companies. So I'm like, okay, well, then he knows tomato products. He knows the thickness and he knows all this stuff. He should be able to handle this. Well, it came down to, let's see, when did we run it? We ran it July 25th of 2019. We finally got the first batch run. So again, we were pretty- In what year? At 2019. Wow. So you were in Ohio. That whole was 27, 2018, and then all 2018, 2019. So two and a half years you're in Ohio? 
No, because when I went there and I said, we can't keep working here, there's no way. I stopped production. I seized production. So we were running on what we had, which was like eight pallets for a year. So basically, you didn't go anywhere else. You were just waiting on these next guys. I was waiting on the next guys. And I'm like, I don't know why this has taken so long. So this long story short, I went out there eight different times because we were trying to get the test batching done and get it right. We had the formula for what was working for us in California. It wasn't like we were starting from scratch. But every kitchen and every processing plant is a little bit different, so you always have to do the test batch. Well, our test batches kept coming out off. So it gets down to July 25th of last year, 2019. I'm there. We're going to start the batch at 7.30 in the morning. And from my experience with these guys, they always run late. So I came in about 12.30. They hadn't started the production. They started batching, which is putting all the ingredients into the kettle at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. They had one problem after another. The lines were clogging. They couldn't get the mix from the kettle to the fill heads, the machine. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Well, that took several hours. Then one of the hoses blew. Oh, and then a valve went out on the pump that goes to the fill head that's right at the fill heads. And then they realized that the fill heads were too small. They had to scramble to find some. They found this is a 16 fill head production facility. 16 fill heads would have ramped up our production very well because California, we were using eight. So we would have been able to get our production done fast, fast, fast. And they found five fill heads that were appropriately sized. Let me go back just a second. So when that hose burst, mix went everywhere. So that took another hour to get all of that cleaned up. And then they had to get that hose switched out. I mean, this is almost humorous, all these things that happen. So then after some of the bottles weren't filling all the way to the top. So then we had to manually fill and get all the fill lines the same level. And we were hand capping everything because their capper wasn't working. Then they go through the dating machine. And the dating machine is imperative because you have to have the lot number of that batch and the dates on it in case anything goes wrong. So then the date machine puts the date on the glass, stamps it. Then it goes through a machine to shrink the neck bands, the plastic bands that keep people from getting into them. Goes through that steamer and then comes out the other end with it shrunk down. Well, there were girls at the end of the steamer wiping the condensation off the bottles. Well, as they were doing that, they wiped off all of the stamp dates. So then they had to reprogram this, they were needing to reprogram the date stamping machine to put all the bottles back through, but the software went down, so they couldn't do that. The label machine broke down, so we couldn't put labels on. So the biggest problem here was that our mix has a time limit. So you got to take it, you bring it up to temperature, you cook it for one minute, because you notice how it tastes fresh and you can taste all the different ingredients like they're fresh. You can't cook it and get that freshness you lose all of the individual flavors by cooking it. So this, the mix had been cooking for, when I left there, it was one o'clock in the morning. So the mix had been cooking for 10 hours minimum when it should have only cooked for a minute. So in the end, all of that mix had gone bad. And who had to pay for that? Well, I had paid for all the ingredients and the bottles and the labels and everything. So I basically paid for it, but then I was paying them for the actual production. Did they reimburse you at all? No. Please tell me you're not still with this co-packer. No. They didn't reimburse me. They closed their doors and disappeared after I got my ingredients back, the, what I had left over there. And when I went to try and collect $13,000 of loss, they disappeared and are nowhere to be found. So that happened. And again, I'm panicking. I randomly call. Are you still actually in Total Wine? Yes. So how did you have that much product from the shitty place in Ohio to this other shitty one in Texas? That's what I'm curious about. I believe I told you that the stores don't sell a lot of mix. There's not that many people that go in there to buy just a specific product. So for each store, we might do a half a case a month. So it's really not a lot. So we were able to have enough on. Okay. back. Yes. Get... Yeah. And I just want to walk through, because I actually am curious about this next co-packer, because I already know what I'm going to name this podcast. And again, it was title, at least for the podcast. But these are important lessons for anyone to learn. 
I mean, I'm frustrated just even listening. So you made 500K basically from 2016 to 2017. And then 2017 to 2018, I'm just wondering what revenues were like, because it sounded like they dipped huge in the next two years. They might have dropped down to 50. Both years, you'd say? Yeah. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Because I was like, okay, I know you had to have a huge dip in 2017, 2018. And then after hearing this, well, it sounds like they're not going to be recovered with all these delays. So now... We have lots of tax write-offs. It sounds like it. (laughs) And this was you doing it full time. So is this when you took your money out of your retirement accounts or wherever else? Yes. Did you go in debt personally for this? Oh, yeah. How much? I had over 100000 on credit card debt. Right. So how much money did you throw into this thing? Like 250 k or something, at least during these two years? At least. That's just the money that we're kind of talking about that you had lying around plus the credit card debt. And then... Yes. Obviously, you have money tied up in product, right? Yes. That's why I was wondering for Total Wine. Yeah, let's go to this next co-packer because, again, you have an interesting co-packing year-by-year basis here. Yeah, it was definitely something to be talked about. The next co-packer I was dialing, and I couldn't get anybody to answer the phone. I left messages for two of them, and then I got this next one, which I got the phone tree. And I hate the phone tree because you don't know who you need to talk to, you know, because it was dial extension for this person, this extension. I don't know who any of these people are. So I randomly choose a woman. And I'm like, you know, if anything else, she can understand where I'm coming from and she's going to want to help me because I need help. And so this was in September, I think. 2019? Yes, or the end of August. It was right around that time frame. But so she answers the phone. I dial her extension. She picks up the phone and I said, I don't know who I need to talk to but I am in dire need of help. And here's what's going on. Here's what happened. And she says, well, you're talking to the right person because this is what I do. I said, well, are you guys able to produce my product? And I told her about the product. She goes, absolutely. Absolutely. My husband and I flew out there to meet with her. I think I talked to her on a Wednesday. We were out and meeting her in her office on Friday. I gave her all my recipes and formulations. And the formulations, you have to understand, they are set up very, very specific. So it's not like cooking in your kitchen. I mean, it's like you take it to this temperature for 30 seconds, this one for one minute, and you're going to do everything by gram weight. Everything is so, so, so specific for commercial production. So she takes that and she goes, okay, I'll make a test batch and I'll get that out to you. You should have it by Monday or Tuesday, probably Tuesday, because she had to overnight it. She gets it to me and it's perfect. Do you know that she had me running in production on that following Friday? So a little bit faster than the other people? Well, 14 months versus... A couple of days. Yeah. For, I mean, I'm talking a week and a half from the day that I got her on the phone to actually being in production. Well, that, you make me feel relieved because I didn't want to throw up your Bloody Mary mix after hearing the other Texas co-packer. I'm like, I hope she's at a different co-packer now. I like to say there's a silver lining in everything because their cost for producing this is half of what the other Texas guys were charging. And I'm like, oh my God, I can make a profit. This is great. That's always good in business. I think that's what we try to do, right? I think that's the idea. Somebody told me it was one time and I kind of think it's right. So with this, I mean, can you get like estimated costs of how much this costs for you to produce? And I know even if we talk about what retail value is, people got to think about, you know, how much they market up or whatnot. But I'm just curious now that we finally found a co-packer that works. I'd love to know what the costs go in. Yeah. So the costs going into, well, can I just back up for one second before I get into that? So the other thing we wanted where we were struggling is we only had the one variety, the red one. Okay. So we had these other recipes. Well, yeah, you had them, but you couldn't even get the red one get right. So that's yeah, probably why so it took a while to do the green. We were able to get the green one, which is the green with envy, which is the one that you also have. We were able to get that into production a month later. Then we also just produced a new one, which is a smoked sweet Bloody Mary. And it is uh, called Little Tart. And that is really specific for tequila as a tequila sipping sauce originally, but We're making it more like a sangrita, which is not to be confused with a sangria because that's wine-based, but we just got that delivered here to our facility in California. That one's going to be launching. So we were able to not only get the red one in production, but we also were able to develop two other new ones within a couple months with the new place. Back to the cost question, you know, the cost in California, my hard cost for the red one was 550 a bottle. 
And then, you know, I was selling it wholesale for seven and then it would retail on average 12. And in Texas, the red one, we got the production costs instead of 550, we've got it down to about maybe 350 total cost per bottle. And what do you sell wholesale and retail? Yeah. And so wholesale, because we got into Whole Foods just recently and that account, we are selling wholesale to them because it has to go through a distributor and that's five seventy five a bottle. And they're selling it for, I think, 12 or $14 a bottle. It's very difficult when the distributors are involved as far as the cost. I could imagine. So, I mean, I'm already having a headache just on you getting it produced. So I don't even want to think about all the other stuff. <laughs> So we're saying when you moved over to this people, again, this was mid in 2019 when you had this new co-packer? No, it was toward the end of 2019. 2019 to 2020. That was that terrible year too, revenue wise? Yes. Okay. So like we're saying maybe 50K again? Yeah. But this year we're ready. We're ready and we are hit. I hope so. You know, and the other thing too is we've had several articles written up about us. I've done different TV shows, won lots of different competitions. The most recent one was how to pick a co-packer. Is that the name of it? No, it was a Sunset Magazine, which is a big lifestyle magazine, pretty much the whole Western U.S. And they did, they have an annual competition and we got double gold with the red, gold with the green, which was brand new, brand new at that time. And then we got best of category with the red and category is all cocktail mixes. It's not just Bloody Mary. It was, and it won hands down against everything that they were judging. So that has produced more engagement as far as different media and articles and things like that. So yeah, I appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon. Yeah, thank you, man. I've been listening to your show for in the last couple of years. I always listen to like my workout. I like how you like really dive in instead of just asking like the typical questions like, okay, tell me more. What was the challenges? How'd you overcome it? Cool, yeah, no, I appreciate it. So why do you want to become a Patreon? I just, yeah, I just want to support you, man. Any feedback you have for me to try to get more members? Because it'll help you and other people the more members I can get. I didn't know what the pricing was. I just kind of glanced at it in such an amount that people, it's like a Netflix model. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, you would finally check it once a month and still, you know, it's adding value. But I think just kind of like saying, hey, guys, it's only like, you know, it's only three cups of coffee. <laughs> just so everyone knows, usually two of my requirements or one of them, at least that I try to have someone be honest, like, are you a millionaire or have you had a millionaire in revenue yet? And you hadn't reached those yet, but I'd like from time to time to have people on who are in the midst of it, right? So people can relate and you're still trying to figure it out. Because sometimes when I interview people, if they started the company 10, 15, 20 years ago, well, hopefully they want to forget about all the headaches that you've gone through, but they're still so recent in your mind that I think you can help people who are listening, who are thinking about a product of like, how much should I charge? What should I look for? And again, so the product was good, right? But we I didn't get to see all or hear all the headaches, right? That you had to go through to get it. That's why I was like, people are wondering like, how has she gotten to this level of like where most of our other guests have gone on? Well, she hasn't yet, but it seems like you're full steam ahead finally now that you've gone through enough of the headaches of- Yes creating a product, especially one where you need co-packers. Right. Well, the biggest barriers to the growth obviously was not having product. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That makes it hard when you're trying to sell a product. Yeah. But the costs were the barriers for the wholesalers as well as logistics. So being in California was a huge barrier. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? So we can wrap up on, or at least go full circle with the co-packers. So some of them wouldn't let you in because it costs too much to make the product? No, the co-packers. They don't care, right? No, they don't care. The challenge with the co-packer is finding one that can actually do your product. Right. And do it the way we you We know want that now. <laughs> yeah. I'm a slow learner, <laughs> apparently. Had to practice a lot. But some of the other challenges, because, you know, this is all new territory for me. I've never done this. But I, I've worked in the legal industry for many years, selling software to attorneys. So I had a pretty good connection of both attorneys that could help me with different setting up the business, because that's another big hurdle that you've got to get the right people on your team to make sure you don't miss those steps. One of the things I'm very grateful for was I actually had the sense to get trademarks on everything. And trademarks, if you go through an attorney, they can run you six to $10,000 for a trademark. Well, I figured out how to do it on my own and cost me two twenty-five for each one. 225K? $225. I'm joking. Yeah. I did it the hard way. I yeah, I know. It seems like you like to, yeah. you have with the co-packer. So I'm like, I'm making sure you weren't doing that with this. Well, actually, that's very interesting. Do you want to tell us about that? 
Yes, absolutely, because it's a really important piece of having a product. So the trademarking process, I've done it probably five times now. And so it's really easy. You know, the website on USPTO.gov and it walks you through, you know, you put your name in there that you want to trademark or whatever it is that you're trying to trademark and it searches. And if it's available and nobody's using it, then you fill out the application. The application kind of be tricky because sometimes they use a wording that you really don't know what they mean. But what I found out early on was you pick up the phone, you call the trademark office, a person answers. And they'll walk you through what your question is, and they'll let you know how it needs to be answered, which was the most supportive thing I've ever, ever experienced with any government agency. I'd say the Patent and Trademark Office is, it's not like anything else. I mean, they actually help walk me through and get these done. Otherwise, I would have been forced to hire an attorney. And again, when I was being self-funded, that wasn't anything that I could see myself doing. Yeah. So what's your patent? I'm on there here. I was just going to search for it while we have you here. Oh, my trademark. I've got Smoke and Mary. And then the logo is also Wells the name. And then I've got Green with Envy. And then I've got Smoke and Mary Mix. And I've got a couple other ones from a different business that I had previously. And you were saying, why do you think that's important? I mean, I can understand, but I want to just make sure everyone else does who's listening too. Yes, absolutely. So The importance of a trademark is really protecting your name and your brand. So what I have found is that there are two or three other companies after I've been in this for a while and I had my trademark that were using Smoke and Mary in different ways. I mean, there's a restaurant, a Pebble Beach, California restaurant that was using Smoke and Mary on their menu. I had to call them. I said, well, unless you're using my mix, you can't use that name. And again, this is something that you don't need attorneys to do this, you know, to police your stuff. You need to always be Googling and looking up your product and see if somebody's copying. And that's something that you pretty much have to put it on the schedule, put it on your calendar so that you go in there maybe once a month and just Google and see what comes up. And then the other thing too, it does take time to get your trademark because the process is you do your application, you pay. And then from that point, it's about 18 months because it goes through. Yeah, it takes a long, long time. But once you have it registered. You're used to things taking a long time, right? Oh, I am. I am. And, you know, when somebody tells me to be patient, I just look at them with my head and I'm shaking my head going, you're telling the wrong person to be patient. So that process, what they do during that several months, they actually have to put out a notice two different times in their, I think it's called the Gazette. And that's for anybody, if you're using something that's close enough that will cause any kind of confusion to another company's product, then they can say that they can appeal you're getting that trademark. So that takes a lot of time because I think each time they produce that, they have to give it 30 days for anybody to appeal and they do it twice. So that takes time. Yeah. Did that ever happen with you? It did. Okay. Yeah. Because I've got some questions actually. This is funny how everything works, but yeah. So yours was too close. Because I looked it up, I see it right here on the U.S. Patent Office. If y'all just Google that and search and smoke and marry, because it's somewhat generic. It's not totally a made-up word or anything like that. So tell us what happened. That yours was, like you said, a little too close to some other people. Well, one of them I got was Virgin Mary, and I got a Virgin Mary because at some point we were talking about possibly adding CBD to our mixes, and we were going to put on the logo. If it doesn't have the CBD in it, we were going to put the Virgin Mary logo so people know that there's nothing in it that is just a mix and on my big scheme of future sale for the company i wanted to sell it to richard branson and he can have all of his bloody mary's trademark with virgin mary so the funny story about that is i got a letter in the mail then an email and it was from richard branson's attorney he's watching me he says i'm opposed to you using this virgin mary And so I actually called him on the phone and the attorney was the nicest ever. You know, I had a great conversation with him and I said, okay, so, and I explained how we were going to be, we were intending on using it. And he says, well, as long as you don't just use Virgin by itself, then I'm fine with that. So he talked me through how to put the verbiage into the application to change it. So I would not use it as a sole word because they don't want that conflict. But the best part about it was, is now I've got his attorney's attention. 
When someone approaches you and says, hey, you know, they don't want you to use that, do they complain to the U.S. patent office and you have to redo it and does it cost you an extra $250 or like how does that work? Right. So typically they would submit an appeal through the trademark office. And this guy, he took the high road by just contacting me directly, which was great because then I actually got to talk to the guy, which was even better. So typically they would just appeal it directly with the trademark office. And then you'd get this notice from the trademark office that you need to respond to. And you have so many days or months to respond. And then it just delays the process. So by what doing what he did, we were able to keep the process going on and keep it on track, which was great. So that one worked out pretty well. Well, it seems like, but I'd imagine you just lucked out then because I imagine most people would just say no to the patent office, right? And then would they patent office again, because it seems like you've had some experience with this. Yes. So I'm just curious if that actually happened, does it get turned down the whole time just because someone else said no, or do you have to keep going or would you eventually have to go to court? I'm just trying to figure out like how much that would cost. It wouldn't get turned down necessarily just because somebody says, no, I don't want her using this. And here's why I don't want her using it. It has to be well-founded, a well-founded complaint. So some of the people that are violating the Smoke and Mary, there's a couple of restaurants and, you know, another one that's producing a mix. I just told him, I said, you know, you just can't use Smoke and Mary. I said, you can say Smoke Bloody Mary on your label, but you can't say Smoke and Mary. And so that's what they did. They just changed it. You know, we worked together so they could get through. One of them had a whole bunch of labels. So I said, well, I'll give you six months, but I can't give you more than that because then it's because I knew what we were planning on doing as far as marketing and really launching and pushing forward. So I was trying to be helpful and not the tough guy because that seems to not work out so well. So you spent 250 to get each because I'm seeing Smokey and Mary and Smokey and Mary mix. You got two different patents there. How often do you have to renew and how much does that cost in case anyone wants to like have their brand name trademark? And again, thank you for explaining some of this because it's not always that easy to figure out, especially when you said the cost. Yeah, I agree because I've Googled some of this stuff before and it's hard for me to when I've like, okay, what happens if I want to come up with this product and trademark it? Because people are saying do that, but I'm like, I don't want to pay for an attorney, right? Right. Yeah. Can you just walk us through any other stories with that? Well, in my first one, like I said, I was walked through by the person just by calling their phone number and that was really helpful. So I had that, her being that helpful that first time really gave me the confidence that I can do this. And if I ever had any problems, I knew that I could call them and work this out. So there's an attorney, a trademark attorney that within the USPTO that is assigned to every application. You know, I haven't been able to really talk to them very often. They're a little harder to reach and don't really return phone calls. So that part's a little more difficult when you have instances of problems that arise after you've applied. Is there annual costs or anything like that? You know, I haven't come up on my renewal yet. I think the first one is five years, and then you have another one at 10. And do you know how much that costs? I really don't know. Because the cost, they could change. And if I were to say it's going to be a hundred bucks, it could be 150 or. But it's not something astronomical, like we were saying, where it might cost a couple thousand. Because that's usually what I thought with trademarks, again, because it always seemed like you had to use an attorney. I'm like, there has to be a way to do it yourself. So I would imagine it'd probably be less than what it costs to actually get the first trademark if you're just renewing it. But, you know, what a trademark attorney does, they do the application online, just like I did. And it's only a hundred bucks. I just looked, by the way, so I renew. Yeah, but who knows after the math. It might change, but again, it just gives everyone an idea. It doesn't cost 10,000 bucks to renew it. No, 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 because it's easy. It's easy. I mean, you're filling out of checking some boxes probably and putting in your credit card. But what a trademark attorney typically does is they monitor the process and any objections. They just do that stuff. But I do that stuff. And any problem that arises, they'll tell me about any problems that arise immediately. So I don't see a reason for an attorney. I say just call their support and have them walk you through it. And then if they can't walk you through it, if they suggest that you talk to an attorney, that's a totally different thing. But I've never had them suggest that to me in my circumstances and instances. But it's been kind of fun. It's, I mean, it's it's definitely been a lot of learning, a lot. I think I've learned enough. Like co-packers, I was exhausted just hearing how much you've walked through it. So we're excited that hopefully this is your breakout year. But thank you for sharing all that. Yeah, now you know what you don't want to do. 
Right. Exactly. That's part of the point of the interviews. That's why I really do appreciate you sharing all that because some people just try to sweep that stuff on their rug. I try to bring it out and you were just open from the get go. So thank you very much yeah. for telling us about co-packers and what to look for. Make sure you actually go to the plant, you know, and making sure you see their process. And then again, about trademarks, that was some excellent information as well. So thank you for coming on and sharing okay. your story. Any last words of wisdom before we get off? It's really about building your team. And, and I'm not saying hiring employees, but it's just having your team of people that can help you. I mean, we all know, most of us probably use LinkedIn, but if you don't have a connection to an accountant or you don't have a connection to, you know, any marketing people or social media or co-packers, you know, co-packers. Yeah. But just, you know, start connecting with different people on LinkedIn that do that and build your tribe. And you've got to rely on people that know what you're asking because sometimes, most of the time, you don't know what you're asking. Exactly. I was telling you that just by asking some of these patent questions. So again, thank you for yeah, walking us down that. And hopefully absolutely. everyone here has learned a lot if they want to make a product here in the U.S. and looking for co-packers and trademarks. So thanks again, Lori. And I'm open to anybody calling me if they've got questions or want to talk to me more about you know some of the things that I've experienced or who they might talk to about certain aspects or areas of business. And I chances are I might have a good answer. Yeah. They can contact you at info at smokeandmary.com. Yep. And smoking is S-M-O-K-I-N, Mary, M-A-R-Y. No G. Correct. And they can look for you on, again, if they're going to just search and just look up her trademarks and that way maybe yeah. y'all can dive in there and kind of figure out how all that stuff works. So thank you again for sharing this information and we really appreciate it, Lori. All right. You take care. There's another website called familiar with that, Nick? You know about that? Yeah, no? but they are but they are expensive. Right, yeah. yeah. But I think they'll still be cheaper than 150K for an app, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's for sure. Am I, getting, am I getting bent over here? Is that what you're trying to tell me? You're saying you're being really stupid. Okay, so what's hey, Well, you, you don't have a video call on, so we can't tell if you're getting bent over. <laughs> <laughs> That was a preview of our first group Patreon call. We're doing these group calls on the first Friday of each month. So if you want to join us, then become a Patreon. Plus, if you're a Patreon and you miss any of the calls, well, as you heard, we'll be posting the recording of the calls on our Patreon feed. So you'll never feel left out. Of course, those calls will be beep free. So you'll actually be able to hear the tools that we're using to grow our businesses. So don't be shy. Become a Patreon and join us on our next group call.